Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Congress Two Beers In. We're, we're doing something newfangled here. We're, we're actually all in the same room. Live in the same studio. It's amazing. <laughs> right? Um, a kind of a new and exciting thing. Um, we, we are socially distanced as best we can. We're actually drinking beer again um, as we can. And of course, be, being that we're here in D.C., we, we absolutely had to um, have some of a D.C. browse, uh, the corruption. So that, that seemed appropriate. Um, I've got a little bit of flying dog over here too, a little Belgian wheat for our our guest, who I'm very pleased to introduce. Um, so you, first of all, you got uh, me, Mark Harkins, and Matt Glassman, two senior fellows. How you here doing? At the Government Affairs Institute, and with us is a non-resident fellow, um, which uh, basically means uh, used to be a fellow and then has gone off to better and uh, things and, and comes back occasionally to help us out. Um, Dr. Sue Lagon. The thing that wouldn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> so we are pleased to have Sue back on premises to do this. Um, we're going to talk mainly um, about uh, the Senate and the Supreme Court um, as we go on. This is this is Sue's uh, bailiwick and her wheelhouse. Um, but before we get into that, I think we want to spend a little bit of time talking about the current events of the week, um, which have been the fact that congressional negotiators... Um, have finally said, we have a top line for doing appropriations. And we know from for a lot of our listeners, um, actually having an appropriation kind of matters a bit. Um, you guys kind of like to know what that's going to be. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll throw to Matt uh, without prepping him at all on this, but you know, how much do we actually know about what, what's going on with this process right now? Not a whole lot. Uh, we don't have We don't have the top line numbers. We just have an announcement that we have a framework for a deal. Um, which is sort of step zero. Uh, what, I, what I think we do know on the politics side is that nobody wants a shutdown right now. Yeah. Um, and, and so even absent this framework that was announced, it looked pretty clear that we had a short-term CR coming that was going to sort of just move the timeline forward so we're not involved in sort of a shutdown politics, which, again, I don't think either side uh, wants at this point. That said, I do think there was a plausible situation where the Republicans might have been pushing for a year-long CR, um, to set things roughly at these, uh, you know, funding numbers from, from prior year. Uh, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen either. It looks like we're going to get some sort of top-line deal, probably something that looks like parity and increases on the defense and non-defense side, if you trust what Senator Shelby says or hints at. Uh, and remember, the other big piece here is that both Democrats and Republicans, or bipartisan coalition, has sort of rejected Biden's defense number and gone, you know, $25 billion above that. Um, which was always a fight that I thought was a little dumb for the administration. It always seemed like they were shorting defense increases enough to annoy sort of all the Republicans and a few Democrats, but not shorting them enough to make sort of like the left happy. Right. Uh, so right. it was a weird thing. It always felt like, well, this is just going to be a conservative coalition that's going to bring this number back up. And, you know, if you saw the, the NDAA number, it was 740 or whatever. So this was not unexpected, uh, but that seems to be where we are. And it, it, you got a couple of weird things going on, too, because when, when you talk about parity, nobody's defined what parity means. Does it mean that both defense and non-defense get increased by the same dollar amount or by the same percentage? And we're in the first, of, the first year in the last decade where we haven't had these numbers predefined because of the Budget Control Act. And so that's kind of what's led to a lot of this, and, and absolutely it was to the Republicans' advantage 
to extend as long as they could since they weren't in control, but they still are essentially controlling the dollar amounts. Um, I, I do think it's important to recognize that this is this is not one of those things where, yay, we're, we're there. Um, no, it's yay, we're at the starting line. Um, we, we still have to divide the numbers up, uh, at least the non-defense one between the other 11 appropriation subcommittees, and that's gonna take a little bit of work. Um, and really the critical component here is riders. Yep. Um, it's gonna be the legislation gets attached to these bills. Uh, the Republicans have said, hey, we want all the legacy riders, all the stuff that we had in there before, to stick around, and no, you don't get to add anything new. And you kind of got the Democrats sitting back going, but, 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 we're in charge now. Um, don't we get a say in some of this? And, and the truth of the matter is they get some say, but not a hell of a lot, because appropriations bills are debatable, and they're by filibusterable, as our good colleague Worth Hester likes to say. Yeah. Um, and so you got to have at least 10 Republican votes to move anything forward. So it, it, it's going to be a bit of a task. So another question, Matt, I want to ask you is, okay, so now we've got, we don't know the numbers, but we assume, although reading the press reports today, uh, I think Senator Murphy uh, from Connecticut said, yeah, I don't have a top line number for my subcommittee yet. Um, ascent, at some point, hopefully over the weekend, they'll get their subcommittee numbers. We may not know them in the public, but the subcommittees will know them. What's the work like at that point? I mean, is it really uh, plausible that they can get these bills written in the next three weeks? Well, I mean, I think this is sort of the shadowy goings-on that have been going on this whole time. Right? Remember, there's nine bills through the House, right? So on the House side, we have bills that have written substantive numbers at the account level uh, for appropriations. And even the three bills that aren't through the House have been written in the House. Now, there obviously hasn't been as much committee action in the Senate, which has been sort of the... Um, signature of the last bunch of years, but even there, it's not like the staff aren't working on this. Um, that said, if you get a you know equivalent of your new 302B, your new committee number for what your target is going to be to hit, um, and it's short of what you had hit, well, you got to go back then and piece it together of what agencies you're cutting. Now, most of these committees have been doing work like this all along. I remember when I was at House Appropriations, it was pretty common for us to do sort of a a budget drill where we'd have to come back with a number that was flat 1%, 3%, and 5% over our sort of top-line subcommittee number, and we come back with budgets reflecting all of those things. So it's not like the subcommittees aren't used to this, but you still have to go back and do it. And you're still then making the calls to the, you know, to the budget shops at each of the agencies and, and giving and taking with them on what they can handle and what they can put off. Because what you don't want to do is just have to start cutting stuff willy-nilly. You'd rather be able to give and take with the agencies and find out people who, oh, they have a delayed start, so they're not going to actually need this money for this many quarters out, so they don't actually have to have it funded this year. That's the way you want to do it, is find the place where you can do the savings, where it works with the agency, rather than just saying, well, we got to cut you know, $100 million. Where are we going to rip it away from? And so there is some work to it, but on the other hand, it's not sort of the three to four months legwork of February to you know July or February, March, April, May, normally in appropriation season. They're, they're, they're a significant portion of the way there. There's still a lot of work to be done. It's going to be a lot of late nights for staffers, but it can be done relatively quickly. Yeah, and I think the, the two interesting factors that will still play out and that the budget shops, for those of you who are around or in those, will have to, to deal with is we're going to be nearly halfway through the fiscal year when this bill gets signed into law. And so, especially for DOD or any other agency where you have a lot of contracting and you expected a lot of things to be able to be contracted in the second or third quarter, all of a sudden everything's sliding right and now you're looking third and fourth quarter 
And as you well know, appropriators love to look at contracting in the fourth quarter and say, no way in heck you're going to get that done. So we're going to cut that anyway. So that's probably part of the, the game that you're going to get to play. On the flip side for DOD, um, they're pouring more money into the pot. Um, and so the president's request is going to be anywhere from 25 to $30 billion short of the dollars that are there. And so all of a sudden appropriators at the end of the day, although they're only maybe adding an extra, the, the news reports seem to say about $5 billion above that 25 that was in the National Defense Authorization Act, that is still $5 billion to be absorbed um, that they're going to have to call you guys up and say, uh, where can you actually use this money? I also have been wondering about one side thing, and I have no idea to what degree is going to happen, but you have like $5 trillion in COVID spending that you might be able to chimp away. Um, oh, real quickly, go yeah. t- talk about what a chimp is. So a chimp is a change in mandatory expenditures, and what the idea is is if you put in your discretionary um, spending bill, which is what we're talking about here, the discretionary appropriations, if you put a cut to a mandatory program in there, you get that savings, which you can then use, and the bill will score at a lower level. And so a classic trick is to chimp things that aren't going to be spent anyway, right? So you have these accounts on the mandatory side that just aren't going to spend this money this year. And so chimp it back, and it looks like savings, but the money's not going to get spent anyway. But from a budgetary scoring perspective, you win. And I have no idea. I'm just totally musing here. But, like, when you spend $5 trillion off the top, on the side on something, right. and a lot of it hasn't been spent yet. Like the incentives to try and chip some of that away, um, from a budgetary perspective, are pretty big. Now that said, from a political perspective, it may look terrible, right? If 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 it's seen that you're taking COVID money, but there probably are pools of COVID money that are just sitting around, right? And, um, and so I don't I don't know what degree those sort of budget games are coming. And that's one budget game of a million that you can play with sort of the scoring rules. Um, I would like to go back to the riders for a sec though, because I do think it's important to remember that. In, in a bunch of the budget fights over the last decade, um, it often has been the spending levels. With the BCA caps, the big fight has been get those caps. But then notice, after those caps have been had, a lot of times the fights have been at the rider level, right. including the shutdowns. Right? Like the Trump shutdown, the big long one, was not over top-line spending. It was over riders. Um, and you could get some horrific fights this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're going to fight out the Hyde Amendment, right? and it's really close, who knows what's going to happen there. And so things like that may become the central focus after those numbers are known. I also think it's interesting what Mark brought up. I think it's a great point that the BCA caps are not in effect, but the BCA mentality carries forward. And so we have this parity issue, which was really just a function of a law that no longer exists now. Like defense spending and non-defense spending aren't like appropriations categories, right? Right. (laughs) They're not. Um, And you don't have to do anything with them in tandem or whatever. They're they're just sort of made up sort of policy fictions. And that's okay. Policy fictions are important, but it's a legacy of the BCA era uh, that I think is going to carry forward for a while, Um, particularly when it serves political ends and things like parity can be used as sort of um, pseudo-rational, pseudo-rational sort of justifications for different increases or not. Yeah, and then the last thing about this, and then I do want to transition, um, is that remember when, when, when you're hearing about the defense number, the defense number does not equal the Pentagon number. There is a large segment of money in there, somewhere between, I think it's 35, plus or minus $5 billion from $35 billion, which is for a Department of Energy program dealing with nuclear uh, security, the securing other things. So when you see the, def- the see the defense number being at 750, that, that really means it's about 720 for DOD. 
Um, and, and as part of that, you're going to see some carve out for uh, military construction projects because there's about 80 billion that ends up going 80 to 100 that goes to military construction uh, program. So when you actually, if you're geeky enough to look at these 302B allocations, and I'm all in favor of that, by the way, um, I, I think I finally figured out ways to figure out when they change those. You, know, you actually have to look at the House and Senate calendars. The calendars will show you where the resolutions were that changed these numbers. So, but geek out later. You know, hit me up at mark.harkins at georgetown.edu, and we will we'll, we'll geek out together. But um, when you see these numbers, they may not match exactly what we're saying right now, but that's because these different things add up. But the, so the Senate's got to figure out how to swallow this, considering they haven't done anything else. Um, but they also got some other important things that they're taking a look at. Um, and so that's why I'm really glad that, that Sue was willing to make a little bit of time to come talk to us because Matt and I are, yeah, we know a little bit. We know they have to vote on a Supreme Court justice. Um, but this is not our, our, our bread and butter. And, and I think a lot of people will be interested in, in how much time this is going to take and, and kind of historically how this played out. And, and we're in a brand new world over the last decade um, because of, of changes that have been made. Um, in the way that the Senate runs. So, Sue, with that as kind of a lead-in, knock yourself out and we'll start popping questions at you. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, everyone's talking about um, the president's campaign promise to nominate a black woman to the bench. That would be a historic first, um, but it might actually be a second time we see a justice in recent years confirmed without a single vote from the minority party. That's the way things are, are looking, depending on who the nominee is. So let me give you just a little bit of context. We've got 115 Supreme Court justices in our history, seven of whom have not been white men. Just let that yeah. sink in for a while. Yes. So uh, another important thing to point out is that the age of justices is uh, going down. Uh, the average age of people put on the federal bench when Obama was president was 57. During the Trump years it was 48. And I think it's significant that all of the folks who are being seriously considered are 55 or under. Again, because their tenure is likely to be forever. Um, my mentor who directed my dissertation was fond of saying that the longevity of a Supreme Court justice is second only to symphony orchestra conductors. So, um, you know, Breyer stepped down uh, at 83, I think probably a, a pragmatic move and you always see anything that's written about Justice Breyer, you will always see the word pragmatist or pragmatic. Um, I think he's given a huge gift to President Biden by um, allowing the focus to be on something other than the fact that we haven't done anything yet on voting rights or build that better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a, a shot in the arm, I think, to the administration, and I think they have to handle it deftly. Um, last night, uh, President Biden said that he's narrowed his choices down to four. He made an announcement that he would probably nominate someone by the end of February. And this is also new, thanks to Barrett, who remember, you know, her, her nomination, confirmation, installation at the Rocket. super spreader event was, you know, 20 minutes. Yes. Again, rather unusual, uh, not to mention at the end of the presidency. But 
I think the time frame is probably pretty short. And I, again, I think um, Democrats in Washington are, are reading the tea leaves here and realize they better act on this pretty quickly. They are all praying for the complete and swift recovery of Senator Lujan, who is out with a stroke. Uh, so our 50-50 Senate is not 50-50. Um, and uh, Vice President Harris can only vote in cases of a tie. So again, maybe it's a good thing that he announced when it would be, maybe it's not. Um, Republicans are not expected to be very enthusiastic about the confirmation proceedings. Uh, in fact, the only word we've really had has been from uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, mm -hmm. who has come out in support of one of the sort of top three who are mentioned, and that's J. Michelle Childs. Childs is from South Carolina. Uh, she's been a district court judge for some time. She was nominated to the D.C. Circuit, but her uh, hearings have been postponed because the White House announced she was under consideration. She's the person Clyburn is pushing the hardest. And she's got a, a few other unique characteristics, too. She uh, is not an Ivy League graduate. She went to the University of South Florida and then got her law degree from South Carolina. Somewhat unique, the only justice on the bench currently who is not an Ivy League graduate is Barrett, mm -hmm. who went to Notre Dame. Um, she is also um, very clearly uh, a, a, a pick that the Congressional Black Caucus has gotten behind, although they haven't come out opposed to any of the other potential uh, nominees. But let me just mention, quickly here, um, some things about the other nominees. The, the one that got the most attention right off is because she's already confirmed to the D.C. Circuit by this court, and that's Katana. Which is a major feeder, right, normally, the yeah. Supreme Court? Yeah, it's a, it, it has been traditionally the sort of springboard. You know, being a circuit judge is wonderful experience and preparation to be a Supreme, but uh, the D.C. Circuit especially has been the springboard, so it's definitely a prestigious place. And uh, she is 51. This Senate has already confirmed her. Uh, she is Harvard undergraduate and law. She was law review and sort of a nice touch. She clerked for Justice Breyer. So kind of nice. What was her name again? I'm sorry. Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, she's heard one case so far on the circuit. The very first one she heard, uh, she sided with labor unions. So that's maybe a, something some Democrats are enthusiastic about as well. She has a couple of, of um, Achilles heels, I guess I should point out. One is that a former clerk of hers has edited profiles on uh, Wikipedia. This has become a big deal. He's made dozens and dozens of edits that make her look good and, more important, make other candidates look bad. She has not commented, nor have any of the potential candidates commented, but, you know, that's a sort of, not the sort of headline you want to see. Yeah, dirty tricks are now out in the public. Right, right. <laughs> The other thing is, just because you're confirmed to the Court of Appeals doesn't guarantee that you'll be confirmed to the Supreme Court. And we've got lots of examples of this. Um, Senator Manchin, Senator Kane, Senator Collins all opposed Barrett uh, to be a Supreme after she had been confirmed uh, before for the uh, Court of Appeals. Murkowski uh, voted against Kavanaugh, having voted for him before. So it's, it's a slightly... Um, 
finer sieve or narrower filter, I guess, to get through. So Childs is 55, um, and she's got 12 years of experience. Clyburn's pushing her. The concern, and he's owed a little bit. I mean, he is owed. He's and, seen as being the guy who got Biden back on track after uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. Absolutely. I and think, that's, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Sue. That, that, I was just going to say that's one of the, the downsides for her, I think. One is there was some concern that, uh, you know, she's sided with management many a time. She's a labor management uh, relations specialist, and that was a concern until Sherrod Brown gave her the thumbs up and said, no, she's going to be okay with labor. But the other thing is, does it look like too much of a kind of craven quid pro quo mm -hmm. to um, choose the person that Clyburn has been so visibly pushing. And Graham has given him a, given the president a little bit of cover by saying she's really the only person he's heard of who could possibly could get his po support. Right, and, and you know, it's tough. It, obviously, we're looking for someone who is extraordinarily well qualified, but another interesting thing to be aware of, fewer than 2% of federal judges have been black women. So that brings us to our third candidate, and that's uh, Leandra Kruger, who is a Supreme Court Justice in California. She's 45. She's the youngest ever appointed to the Supreme Court. She clerked for Justice Stevens. Uh, she worked in the Solicitor General's office. She's argued 12 cases before the court. She doesn't have federal court experience other than being in the SG's office. But her big problem is one that could become very interesting, and that is uh, sh her nomination would be catnip for the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee who want to be president. Uh, so that would be Senators Cruz, Hawley, Cotton, um, who would go to town on a case that she argued and was unanimously <laughs> rebuffed at the Supreme Court. It's a, a religion case. It gets really geeky inside baseball about uh, a ministerial exception, but it's, it's basically one in which the government's argument was in cases that involve anti-discrimination laws, um, the First Amendment's religious freedom guarantees are not necessarily that significant. <laughs> um, something you never want to be in a position to say, and this is one where then Justice Scalia and um, Kruger's former boss, Elena Kagan, were both just astonished. Kagan said that the government's position is amazing and not in a good way. So this is an easy softball to paint her as hostile uh, to religion. And this, uh, I, I think this is, Interesting thing, but just a big picture point here is to think about how a president's decision making goes when they're selecting a nominee. Because I think a lot of people picture the president sitting up at the White House, pouring over candidates and investigating their backgrounds and finding out what their ideology might be on the courts. And they forget that this is a much more group coalition project. And that members of Congress, you know, we think of them having their influence when they vote on the Senate floor on these things, but that's not really where the influence is. Once the thing gets to the floor, it's almost always going to go through. The influence is now at this point in the vetting and the selecting of the candidates ahead of time. And uh, I don't think it's any different than Trump picking executive branch nominees or any president who People say, well, you know, the Republicans just voted with Trump. Nonsense. Trump campaigned against Wall Street, and then lo and behold, Steve Mnuchin is Treasury Secretary, right? <laughs> Why is that? It's because other actors in the coalition right. wanted that nominee. The president is constrained by what everyone else in their party wants. And I think it's interesting, Sue brings up really three classes of things to think about. One is ideology. Two is 
sort of uh, a scripted representation. Biden has said he's interested in having a black woman on the court. Uh, and three is sort of personal backgrounds that may cause problems, be them sort of soft scandals like your, uh, you know, your, your clerks editing Wikipedia or specific decisions you had um, that may cause you trouble. Um, and a lot of this, to me, uh, falls in the category of overvetting. But it's also reality. It's also political reality, and so it doesn't matter if I think it's overvetting. This is sort of what you have to deal with when you get to the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, you make and a good point in, in that um, I fear we may come to the time that no one is going to want to have their name put in nomination. I mean, who wants to be the next Anita Hill? You know, and I, I worry about that in public life generally, but particularly at the court, right. where, you know, you face the... Um, scrutiny of uh, your friends as well as your foes, um, nothing is left unturned. I mean, I, I think the overvetting point is a really valuable one that might have long-term consequences, and I hate to think we'd be at a point where someone would say, yeah, being a Supreme Court justice is a nice gig, but I'm going to pass. Yeah, there is sort of a narrowing path you see to the Supreme Court, too, which is something like go to Harvard or Yale Law School. Yep. Don't write anything super controversial. Go work in, in the, you know, go work for the AG and administration. Go do a tour at Senate Judiciary so you don't bother them and you become friendly with them, and then wind your way back into a court spot. Um, and I, for one, would like to see two classes of people on the court who are not there. One is politicians. I think the the impulse to have strictly uh, people who spend their time in law school and writing in law reviews and serving in federal courts does a huge disservice to the political nature of the court. Right? Mm -hmm. And people say, well, that's crazy. Why would you pick a governor to be in the Supreme Court? Well, that's what Earl Warren was. Right? Right. He's a governor, yes. right? Sandra Day O'Connor. Right. You, you, you can put politicians on the court. And the second thing you put on the court, you put people of different legal experience. I would love to have someone on the court who had been a prosecutor or been a defense attorney, who had been a practicing person in the criminal justice system or the civil justice system. Too many people on the court have spent their whole time arguing in front of courts and appellate courts on behalf of the government. Um, uh, or on the bench ruling about it. And so I would love it if Biden would consider, you know, you say we want diversity in the court, and God bless him, it's great that he wants to appoint a black woman in the court. God knows the diversity of the court has never sort of um, been much of anything. But I would love to see other signs of diversity in the court, too, including sort of people who didn't go to Harvard and Yale <laughs> and people of different kinds of legal experience or political experience. And, and one last thing in this, too, I know you've got a fourth person you want to talk about, mm. um, is that courts are also finding themselves under a little bit of a cloud right now financially financial uh, transactions and um, the ethics of that. And so that's probably a newer sieve that's got to be used for some of these people, too, that hasn't been used in the past. Yeah. Maybe less of an issue with the candidates that he's looking at because you're not looking at people necessarily who are from money, um, whereas many others in the past have been from money. Um, but that, that's something else that's out there. Yeah, yeah and, and again, like anyone who wants to serve in federal uh service in an appointed capacity, they do have to fill out disclosure forms, yep. but of course, there's all sorts of things that go beyond um, disclosure funds. So, um, Matt, you will be pleased to know some of the other names that have been floating around have been uh, Candace Jackson Akawumi, who's a, a federal public defender. That would be a unique Cheryl mm -hmm. uh, Eiffel, who until recently headed the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. Uh, she stepped down to be replaced by a woman named Janai Nelson, uh, who is taking Eiffel's former spot. And then there's Nancy Abudu, who's the litigation director at the Southern Poverty Law Center. So 
This is a tricky one because all of the current justices have served as judges except Elena Kagan. She was an academic and she, of course, was Solicitor General. Um, but the rest all have judicial experience. You know, it's not a requirement uh, of the, the Constitution, though it certainly likely would be something the ABA would look askance at. You don't have to be a lawyer um, to be on the bench. So you could, you know, I mean, it, I don't know, I, I think but, maybe but, Trump could have appointed the MyPillow guy. And we but, but, I mean, the ABA looked askance at some of the last people who actually got confirmed. Right. So That's my I don't point. know what their, uh, what their cover, even with the people who've been judges. Well, and the, the ABA, I think their recommendation is, is certainly something that Democrats pay a little bit more attention to. True. You know, when Trump was appointing judges, he was pretty open about the fact that he kind of outsourced the vetting to the Federalist Society, a very conservative mm -hmm. organization of um, legal practitioners and scholars. So, uh, you know, when Matt says the decision is not made by a president poring over documents, um, I, I think certainly listening to the ABA is significant. I think the political dynamic has become... Yeah. Much my my problem with the ABA is they fall right into the crowd of people who just see the court as sort of like this almighty gift on high to politics that's going to adjudicate all the mess of the yeah. problems instead of a separate political actor that's part of the political process. And so they, they seem to preference sort of these enlightened theorists, uh, conservative or liberal, this isn't an ideological thing, who want to think about the law as something that they are gatekeepers of to keep them away from sort of the president and the elected officials in Congress who are part of like the riffraff, right? But I don't see it that way at all, right? This is a political institution that is thoroughly enmeshed in these politics. And so I, I, I'm always skeptical about, and it's not just the ABA, plenty of people fall in this crowd, including members of Congress, unfortunately, mm -hmm. right, who see the court as some sort of higher body that they just have to listen to their edicts from down high. Uh, and so one reason I would love to get more people who are closer to rough and tumble politics into the court is one is I think it would clean up the writing of the court. Somebody should read the court writing and they're just sort of writing in this sort of academic way that is inaccessible and totally devoid of real world politics on it. Uh, but second, I think it would sort of reinforce that the court is political actors. Everyone likes to pretend they're not, but of course they are. Well, it, Pew just came out with a study in, in December saying that uh, the court's approval rating is 54% and disapproval is 44% which is significant enough, a statistic on its own, but it's also a 15-point drop in the past three years. Wow. So the political nature of the court Whether clearly, they like it or not. Right. It clearly comes into play. And you've seen Roberts really sort of grapple with this too, right? I, I don't think I've ever seen, a, certainly in my lifetime, a, a chief justice who seems so intent on trying to preserve the court, um, uh, court's legitimacy or influence or sort of... Um, respectability as much as Roberts has, you know, fighting against tides in a lot of ways of uh, the court just becoming uh, thoroughly partisan, which it may or may not be, and then having its perception as being thoroughly partisan and damaging its ability to get its decisions um, carried out effectively. Yeah, the, the, the era will be known as the Roberts court, and so he's yeah. concerned right. about legitimacy. Yeah. Um, certainly the role of precedent plays into that, but I mean, I, I'd go so far as to say not since John Marshall, our, our fourth and probably most significant Chief Justice, has there been a justice who has tried harder to retain the legitimacy? Um, he's really tried hard not to have five, four decisions. Right. Mm -hmm. he's, he's got another 20 years, probably, yeah. in this role. So, I mean, he's got, 
they're, they're, the, the book is not written on, on robbers. One, one other point, talking about this politics and how things play out, and then I want to talk a little bit about what, what we think, how it's going to play out actually in electorally the in the oh. Senate. In the Senate, not electorally yeah. necessarily, but in the Senate, is that Biden is the third president in the history of our country to have a majority that's filibuster-proof on his judicial nominations. Right? The first was Carter, because right? there was there was no way to be filibuster proof before 1917. So Carter was the first one, but that was a little weird, right? Because you get the Southern Democrats versus the other Northern Democrats, and so that truly wasn't, I don't think, a, a filibuster proof. So and, and Obama didn't have it at the beginning uh, of his term either, because we didn't make the changes until July 2013, and, and we didn't have they didn't have 60 votes until 60 July. Until July. Um, and but it was really 2017 for the court, right? It's when when Supreme Court, but but even for judicial, in general, we had a sense that it was going to play out that way. But Trump was the first one, and and how did that play out? I mean, Matt, you were talking about the vetting of folks and, and how we had to do it in different ways. The vetting now, I mean, the last four years pre Biden during the Trump administration was gut check. I mean, Trump just kind of kind of put up anybody want, and how did that play out? I see. He had the most people. Yeah. who removed themselves from consideration, even though he had the majority to get everybody through in those first two years. Um, Biden's not falling into that trap yet, but there used to be a time when you had to have votes from the other side. right? Sue, so, as you said, we've only yeah. had one chief justice, one justice who's ever been elected with zero votes from the minority, and it's no surprise it's the most recent one. Um, it, is this going to be the way it's going to be going into the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the one thing for sure that has happened since 2017, and this is blaming on Trump or McConnell or anyone else, is that the rules are such now that you can nominate people who can be thoroughly partisan nominees in terms of their confirmation voting, and they can pass. And that just wasn't possible. It just wasn't possible right. before. No, no buy-in is It just wasn't possible. And so the, the two consequences of that. One is that presidents know this, and their coalition knows this, and so they want people who are more ideological in the court, they're going to get them. And second, the way the nominees behave in the Senate is just unbelievable to me. Like, watching Kavanaugh scream at Klobuchar in a hearing was something that was unthinkable when Roberts got put on the court in 2006. Yeah. Was Robert 2006? 2005? Whatever that was. Um, it's just not thinkable to have a nominee to the bench screaming at someone in the minority on that Judiciary Committee. It just wouldn't happen. Um, and part of this was, you know, I think Kavanaugh did this strategically, right? Whatever problems he had in his nomination with all the scandals surrounding you know, his life as a teenager, right? serious or disbelieving, whatever you think of them, he knew that if he could turn this into a partisan thing, he'd have the votes there. And that was not something a nominee could even dare do 15 years ago because they needed those votes of the minority. Um, And so that's a huge sea change in how presidents and nominees approach this. You know, when you get your Sherpa and you go around to each of the offices to meet with the senators, it was 100% rock solid in 2005. You were going to every Senate office, and you were being as polite as possible to every single one of those people. Right. And with Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett, they made their rounds, but you don't want to see someone, don't see them. They're being mean and nasty to you. Don't go see them. Yeah. And go tell the cameras that like you're going to go to places where you're welcome, right? Um, and that's a totally different world. Yeah, you know, back when they lowered the threshold for cloture to 51 from... Um, 60 in, in 2013, and Harry Reid was majority leader. Um, I remember well several senior senators saying, you will rue the day 
uh, Senator Chris Dodd was probably the leading opponent of this. And in the short term, it was great. All of a sudden, President Obama got a ton of his nominees right. installed and actually turned the federal bench from being a mostly Republican-appointed institution, uh, as it had been since Reagan, to installing a whole bunch more Democrats, which is fine, but, you know, for how long? Um, when McConnell extended that in 2017 to get Gorsuch on the bench, I think the die was cast. So in answer to your question, is this the way it's going to be, uh, sadly, I think it is. Now, Matt, you might be happy in that it at least lays bare the notion of just how political yeah, uh, court appointments can be. And I, here I, I do need to inject one important thing. You know, when we look at the court, we think of all the big constitutional law cases, really significant sorts of things like, you know, vaccine mandates and remain in Mexico and that sort of thing. The reality is most of what the court hears and more than half of its decisions remain unanimous. Mm. I mean, it's geeky inside baseball, administrative law, tax Interesting. Yeah, you don't think about that, right? And a huge proportion of it is statutory interpretation of congressional statutes, not constitutional consideration, right? Which right? is, which is, you know, something no one has ever begrudged the court of its responsibility right. in doing. But the constitutional stuff, particularly when it seems very clear that they're looking for things, and here the obvious is the abortion issue, where, mm -hmm. you know, were I forced to put money on it, I suspect we will see the court um, limit uh, women's right to choose, uh, how far they go, um, and whether they overturn Roe. I couldn't tell you, but it's very clear. I mean, we've been watching this sort of constant progression, and that too, I think, is a gift to Democrats. If there's an issue that can maybe get some of their more complacent members to pay attention, that would be it. The problem is it's a little late. Right. Um, we have a 6-3 court. Yeah, 20, 2010 was the big election for that to occur, right? And that was, and, and the way the Republicans did that was gay marriage issues. Right. Uh, and that really led to an incredible outpouring of voters on the Republican side in an off-year election, like the one we're coming up to. But it also was a redistricting year election, yeah. and it changed a lot of things and I think that election is the watershed for what you're talking about right now yeah. that has led to where we are and I so think that, elections I think have that, consequences. Yeah and I think conservatives have over the last full generation taken much more sort of active uh, looks at shaping the court because they feel burned by the court more than liberals had. Now I think liberals may be right. feeling that way at this point but uh, all the decisions through the 70s be it the abortion decisions or the free speech decisions all these sorts of things that sort of riled up conser social conservatives. Uh, and then sort of the disaster of the Stevens nomination and the Souter nomination, you know, uh, looking like um, conservatives but ending up being liberals, uh, I think really taught conservatives that they needed to get control of the core. And they made that a core electoral component of their, uh, of their policy agenda, where liberals didn't, I don't think. I think maybe now they're catching up, um, but I certainly don't think they were. You know, the ideological simpatico feature with justices behaving like the presidents who appointed them is something that legal scholars will argue all the time because of those instances, like the ones you mentioned, like Stevens and Souter. Um, 
that goes way back. Uh, Eisenhower was asked, you know, what's the biggest mistake you made in office? And he said Earl Warren, um, you know, relatively conservative governor of California who presides over one of the most liberal or progressive courts in, in history. So these days I think it's pretty clear that presidents are going to appoint people who look at the law the way presidents do. And remember, Biden having been in the Senate is no stranger to and the, the judiciary committee. process. Right. Chairing Judiciary Committee, you know, again, no stranger. Dick Durbin being the number two guy in the mm -hmm. Senate. Uh, and now chairing, at least nominally, uh, when Lou is back, chairing the committee is, is another significant, you know, these guys have been around the block. They know how it used to be. I do think, I do think that, um, you know, I don't think Roberts has been sort of a disappointment to George Bush or to conservative think like Bush, but I think Roberts now has the ire of a lot of conservatives yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's not necessarily because Roberts changed it's because the conservatives changed and, and that's not sort of like unusual or bad anyway in the course of what is going to be 30 years on the bench or whatever you know Roberts ends up doing there um, but people are going to come to be disappointed with, with the justices because the justices don't you know their their politics doesn't have to swing with the electoral needs of a two-year or four-year or six-year cycle design. in By federal design. politics yeah. so let me two quick questions and then I can figure out where else we want to go, but first, um, Sue, how do you think Biden's doing with the fact that he's got this advantage in being able to put people in the court, even though the Democrats only have the 51 of bears to votes, how are they doing filling the courts? They're doing very well, um, and this is also interesting. He sort of took a page, dare I say, from Trump's playbook. You know, when Trump came in, he focused like a laser beam, uh, not just on the federal courts, but on the appellate bench. Mm -hmm. Uh, and was very successful at getting his folks installed, thanks to the Senate rules change in 2017, saying you only need 51 votes to get a Supreme. Um, Biden is second only to Ronald Reagan in terms of the number of judges he has put on the federal bench. Uh, he's gotten 46 uh, uh, on the bench, and he's got another 36 in the pipe. So it's been fast for a, a, a first year. Um, again, some of this is, is luck. You know, Trump was lucky enough in a one-term presidency to have three picks. I mean, that's sort of unheard of. Well, I mean, Roosevelt had, you know, but, but that was nine, but that was a long term. Yeah. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter had none. Mm -hmm. So again, sort of luck of the draw. And that brings me to the whole idea of term limits. Mm -hmm. uh, something that might be one of the reforms people have looked at. It's tricky because limiting terms would require a constitutional amendment. So there's a fallback position that's sort of interesting, saying, okay, Constitution says you can serve during good behavior. What about you can still serve as a federal judge, just not on the Supreme Court? So maybe after 18 years, you go back and be one of the gang. Um, on one of the circuit courts or even go back to being a district court judge. Again, uh, while I think there's potentially some merit to that, it's hard for me to see any president really enthusiastic right. about voluntarily getting rid of their own... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, right, it, it is. It's unilateral disarmament. Why would you allow your legacy to be um, weakened? And so... That's interesting because I know the state courts 
limit to age, not necessarily to term length. You were talking to term length there. Or age. I mean, right. the age thing gets you into an immediate, well, and, and again, you know, Ginsburg was 87 and still very sharp. Um, Stevens and I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes were in their 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it doesn't automatically mean that you're not on top of your game because you're older. The problem with limiting term by age for the Supreme Court is, well then, you know, what do you think about the fact that we have a guy in his late 70s in the White House? Right. How about Congress? Should we limit members of Congress? I mean, those of us who remember the days when you had offices that were, quote, staff-driven, right. <laughs> meaning the member was, you know, out yeah. to lunch, um, you know, that becomes a, a, a trickier issue. So I think the age thing might be harder, but it wouldn't matter if you had a term limit. And the number floating around is usually 18. Um, Ro Khanna in the House has actually introduced legislation mm. uh, about this. Again, it'll go precisely nowhere, um, but it, it, worth worth mentioning. You know, remember after Barrett, you heard a lot of progressives saying we got to expand the court. Right. And Biden uh, knew well enough that you know expanding the size of the court was one of those things, kind of like defund the police. You know, this is going to come back and bite you hard. Uh, so he created a commission to look at it. The commission was very balanced. It wrote a very nuanced report. I think I'm one of the six or seven people in town <laughs> who's actually read that report. Um, and it'll go, you know, nowhere. The only thing they thought might be a possibility would be the idea of limiting terms. Interesting. So let's, let's just, for the sake of argument, say something like that were to happen. Um, and let's look forward to... Let, let's say that Republicans take over the House, uh, take over the Senate, in this and the midterm elections. What's the likelihood that Biden's going to get any judges through a Republican Senate in the following two years? I mean, the way that we've politicized it so far. I mean, what was what was Trump's? I mean, because Trump didn't have to deal with that. He had a Republican Senate yeah. all four I've years. Been very, I've been very worried about this. The the scenario you're envisioning here with the opposition party controlling the Senate and just putting a blockade on Supreme Court justices is... All? all. I don't, I don't know about all. I mean, the, the, the vast majority of judges are going through the Senate still with huge bipartisan majorities at the district level. That's very different than the Supreme Court. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine an opposition Senate confirming a Supreme Court justice for a seat that swings the ideological balance of the court. I just can't. It's really hard to picture right now. Um, and that's not great. Yeah. <laughs> that's really not great. Now, that said, I, I think one place the Senate has sort of defied this partisanship is on the executive branch nominations, uh, where I still think there's a norm that holds in the Senate that the president is entitled to his team as long as he's picking minimally competent people. Um, you're, you still see relatively large votes, bipartisan, for the core members of the president's team. Um, now, on the judicial side, that just doesn't seem to be there. Graham espouses this ideology, and he kind of walks the walk too. Mm -hmm. Graham has voted for uh, He's a, a third lot, most likely. Yeah, a lot yeah. of Democratic nominees to higher courts, simply saying, "I think if the person's not extremely unqualified or crazy, then they should be the president should get their picks." And that's noble, and it used to be the opinion of a lot of people. It's not the opinion of most people now. Yeah, and so I don't know what happens if an opposition party gets control of the Senate and just tells the president, "Forget it." Right, then you're down to pure power politics. I mean, so far, um, with the 50-50 Senate, 
Biden's gotten about 60% of his nominations through. Now, mind you, he started with a court that had uh, about a, a third uh, of appellate judges being Trump appointees and about a quarter of, of all federal judges. So, you know, that, that's where the baseline. But the most supportive ones, and I actually looked this up, um, Susan Collins has supported 86%. Murkowski 79 and Graham 62. But as Matt points out, they are the outliers. But say it remember, falls off pretty quickly then. Remember, yeah. you know, you've got the at least three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse serving on judiciary in the person of um, Cruz and Hawley and Cotton, um, all of whom I think are looking down the road and yeah. thinking they have bigger fish to fry. and. This is an issue that has always played well with the base. Remember, a lot of people tolerated Trump because he was going to appoint their kind of judges. Mm -hmm. um, and he made good with uh, the judges he did nominate and was successful in getting them confirmed to the Supreme Court, certainly. Um, you know, I think that's legitimate. I think that's a, a, a completely legitimate Yeah, I, I mean, view. I think... Or you look at that number from Lindsay, and all you, all you can say about that is, well, Lindsay is never running for president. Right. He may like to be Secretary of Defense in a Democratic administration, right? right? Like, and, and that's not most senators. Most senators think they're going to be president and are not going to be sec def in someone else's administration, right? You know, he's got the pendulum that goes from, you know, yes, 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 absolutely not. And we've seen that in so many other issues. Um, but again, any support is, is good support as far as... Biden is concerned, and you know if if Biden does wind up going with Michelle Childs, it'll be very interesting to see whether Graham is right that there might be some other Republicans that would go. Along. Well, I did. I mean, you did have that reporting. I guess it would have been not this week, but last week that the Tuesday caucus lunch for the Republicans was quite the throwdown over political strategy about this nomination, with a pretty strong divide between uh, people who wanted to go sort of full out. Opposition, kind of standard fare for judicial things right now, certainly the presidential candidate want to do that. Um, and then other people, perhaps McConnell included, who wanted to take a more tempered tone about this for fear of alienating people coming up to midterms that they expect to win. Um, one thing that we didn't, we touched on a little bit, is that this is sort of good news for Biden in the sense that now he's on an agenda topic that should pull his poll numbers up, right. even if he just brings his partisans back in line with him. Right. Uh, right. And the Republicans have lots to talk about, uh, be it sort of the unendingness of COVID or inflation, right? Or, or, or the economy, right, that, that they would prefer, I think, to talk about than have the issue be a very partisan court nomination. If you just make everything ultra-partisan again, at this point, it probably helps Biden because he's sort of down from partisanship right now in sort of a negative territory with uh, independent Dem leaners. The, the racial dimension, too, can't be overlooked. Like, right. really? You're, you're not, you're not going to do anything on voting rights? Really? Voting rights? Um, in an era where so many states are making it harder for people to access the ballot. Um, you know, Senator Wicker came out and said that this uh, appointment, that Biden announcing this was going to be a black woman, was affirmative action. Uh, another red mm -hmm. meat issue for a lot of conservatives. And, and just up the hill here, didn't we have a, a Georgetown yes, professor a, have a, a bit of an issue? A law professor, yes. Um, who did have a bit of an issue. Um, and again, um, who was the other one? Who, someone else. Um, oh, it was Cruz. It was Cruz who said this is insulting to black women. 
uh, you know. So I mean, they're they're laying it on pretty thick here, and uh, I think you're right that McConnell has a, a shred of concern left, at least, about not wanting to be identified as the racist party. Well, I mean, I think I, whether McConnell has that figure or not, I don't know, but I do know that he wants to win. <laughs> Um, and he wants to take the strategy that is going to win him back the majority leader spot in November. And if that meant sort of shaking the ground about this nomination, I think he'd shake the ground. If it meant sort of ignoring this nomination, I think he'd try to ignore the nomination. Now, obviously he has to make sure the caucus follows behind him, uh, or then he's not going to be the majority leader either way. But uh, I think if, if he had his druthers, he may prefer to focus on other things in this nomination. So uh, to kind of close up, um, what do you think the timing is on this? Do you think it, it's done before the end of March? Gosh. I, you know, I, I think a lot really does depend on Lujan's health um, and whether he's back. Um, it, you know, well, not necessarily his child's, though. No, that's true. That's true. Some um, people raised the point with Barrett that they didn't really look so much to her uh, suitability for the but Susan Collins said this, that it was too rushed. So again, uh, that's a charge that can be leveled, although if you're appointing someone who is already a federal judge, you know, you're, you're starting fairly mm-hmm. far down There's the a lot road. of vetting that's been Senate done. Judiciary yeah. has that 200-page book already. <laughs> right. They can just ask for the duplicates of it. Right. I'm, this is not a joke, people listening. You can go to Senate Judiciary website and yep. get sort of the, yep. the questionnaire that you need to fill out if you're going to be a candidate for a federal judi- judgeship. And I'm not, you know, necessarily knocking it. These are lifetime appointments, and I think mm-hmm. the Senate should consider them carefully. That said, the questionnaire is absurd. It right. is literally like, hand us everything you've ever written. Uh, in your professional career since you finished law school. Right, and then we're going to have a hearing where you're not going to be able to answer any question. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to ask you questions. Right, and, and that's been something since Kagan. I mean, yeah. that Kagan's yeah. confirmation hearing is really the first one where you have to sort of sit there and bite your tongue till it bleeds if you're the witness. Again, if you're a judge, you've, you know, you've written opinions. You've, you've right. gotten, uh, you there. have a record. Um, it's all there. It's all there. And... You know, in, in terms of timing, I mean, they, they got to act pretty fast. The question really becomes how long can some of the Republicans drag out questioning? And like I say, uh, you know, they will find the issue that will, right. whether it's a, abortion or whether it's uh, executive uh, power or what, they'll find the issue that will play best to their electoral. Base. But there's really no scenario that I see where this isn't done before the end of the session in June. It, it, I think they'll have somebody up. They'll have somebody confirmed by the end of the session. And, and Breyer's, Breyer's staying till the end of the court session, and so the right the uh, is, actual commission will come on the day, day of the session. Which is a real gift yeah. that you right. know he, he's not leaving until his successor right. is so, installed. So the new person would be installed in July. Right. And that's not, he's not the first. I mean, that's how. Right. I mean, and that, and that is sort of the, the, the space here. You know, you want to consider the political calendar, obviously, yeah, if you're the Democrats. Yeah. But, like, there's no July. rush to confirm this that's from true. the bench point of view. Breyer's right. not going anywhere in the next three months. That's and, and they, you know, remember that for all intents and purposes, the court concludes its calendar on the 30th of June and starts mm-hmm. back up the first Monday in October. So, the July time frame, I think, is it, it, it's a reasonable one. Is, is a reasonable one. Yeah. 
All right, well, I think we've gone about as okay. long as we're going to keep people's attention. All right, well, thank this you. This has been fantastic. This has been great. Thank you for coming, Lots Sue. Lots of fun. Awesome Lots of fun. Thank you. you. Uh, good luck, and thank you, everybody. Uh, and we, this was amazing doing this in person. <laughs> so Hopefully it's the beginning. In a room with some people for the first time in two years to record a podcast. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will catch you next time on Congress Two Years In. Mm.